We're going to read together from Romans chapter 9 this morning. After a, a wee break, a time away from uh, the book of Romans, we are resuming again. Paul spent the first uh, eight chapters laying out the great need for salvation, uh, the dire circumstances that we uh, are in, humanly speaking, that we uh, are called to know and love God, and yet do not do so, cannot do so. Uh, and now as he comes to the end of Romans chapter 8, where he assures us of the greatness of God in salvation, he begins to address a question that's clearly uh, not just on his mind, but on the mind of many uh, of his day. What do we do about all those who don't believe? And particularly, what do we do uh, with the people of Israel? And in Romans chapter 9, uh, we hear these words. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power on you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. 
And in every place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for your Word. Lord, we thank you that it is sure and it is certain that as we read it, we are able to read not just um, the opinions of man, but we are able to read of your desires for each and every one of us down through the ages. We thank you, Lord, that we can place confidence in your Word as we have done for the last 2,000 years. And so, Lord, as we read it together this morning and as we seek understanding, we pray that you would also bring transformation to each one of us, that we would grow a little more in our walk with you. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we ask your blessing upon us as we consider it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, past week has been uh, a rather busy one uh, for me. We've had a return to school, as you'll know, which suggests in theory that most parents have had more time over this past week than they have done uh, over the uh, duration of the summer holidays. But as things have worked out, a number of things have resumed with the beginning of the new school term, and it's met uh, in my life altogether in one week, it would seem, for an extraordinarily busy week. My personality is that of uh, an introvert, not in the sense that I'm necessarily shy and retiring all the time, but uh, spending loads and loads of time with people is really quite um, physically draining on me. I get very tired uh, making conversation with loads of new people, um, and this week has just been a, a bit of a bonanza of meeting new people and trying to remember faces and, and names. And, uh, you know, times among them this week have been spent at the football club on uh, Thursday morning, getting to know the players, getting to know the coaching staff, uh, getting time at the game yesterday where sadly things didn't work out in Livingston's way and I suspect that there's a number of the board would wish that I would go back to being the chaplain of Cowdenbeath rather than lavishing my attention upon Livingston, given as soon as I've done so they started losing, um, which was very much Cowdenbeath's pattern over the five years that I was involved uh, as the chaplain at Cowdenbeath. But there's loads of people. And as you get to know new people, I, I don't know about you, but, but I am wondering where they're coming from, what their background is, 
I'm wondering, do they know anything about Christ? Do they know anything about the church? What, what is their, their faith? Where are they coming from? I wonder, how on earth am I going to find ways of, of sharing my faith with them, not seeking to belt them over the side of the head with a Bible, but just introduce in a, in a natural way the fact that, that I see the world in a very different way to the way they do because of who Christ has made me. And I would love it if they would see the world in that way because Christ has transformed them as he's transformed me. I, I, all of this is buzzing around in my head. And, and inevitably you come to the question, why are there just so many people all around us who know nothing of Christ? The gospel has been proclaimed for 2,000 years. And although the church has never been bigger than it is today, Although there have never been more disciples of Jesus than there are in the world today, there are still so many people who just don't see, who don't hear, who don't understand. Their eyes and their hearts are darkened. Why is it like this? And why is it that I am not like that? What, what is there between me and you that, that makes us so different? And it's a struggle. I know it's a struggle for uh, a great many of us who have family members who aren't Christians, and, and we so desperately want to see those that we love the most know Christ as we know, and we want to see them saved. It's especially the case for, uh, for parents and for grandparents, I suspect. And as we read this passage this morning, Paul begins to address this. He's been addressing it already in the first eight chapters of Romans as he's talked about the fallen state of mankind, how all people live from birth in rebellion against God and why that is such a dire circumstance, why nothing can be done about that from our own perspective and why we so desperately need Jesus, leading to that high point in chapter 7 into chapter 8 where Paul says that this is all utterly hopeless, save Christ coming and being our Savior. Thanks be to God for all that He's done in Christ because without Him, we would all be without hope in the world. And as he comes to chapter 9, he turns and he looks at his own people. And it's not that it baffles him. It's not that he doesn't understand. He wants to address these issues for those in the church who are struggling to understand. How does this work? Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, so why are so many Jews not accepting him? And, and what does that mean? Has God just given up? He's had this people for millennia. He's led them through so many different experiences. They've weathered so many hardships. And is that it now? Are they just sort of done? You can leave them by the side of the road and move on with something new and with, with something better? Well, Paul begins to address that question, and in doing so, helps us address this question today of why so many people who've received so much good things from God, so many blessings, still know nothing of him. In fact, actively uh, reject him and what we're supposed to do about any of that as a Christian people today. The problem is not all people are saved. Paul begins that, uh, the, the chapter with that note in the first five verses. I, I always sort of chuckle to myself when you hear Paul using words like this in verse one. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. 
And you think you're writing bits of the Bible here. We we can have a fair degree of confidence that you're not lying. But obviously Paul's first readers don't know this. This is just a letter from the Apostle Paul. And we don't really know what their view of, of Paul's letters were. And so Paul's assuring them, this isn't just some wild opinion that I've got, some thing that I've conjured up, or something that I'm telling you just for the sake of keeping the peace in the church in Rome, whatever difficulties they might be having. Perhaps there are uh, factions within the church that um, have come from a Jewish background and are seeking to lead the church uh, back, really, to, uh, to Judaism, rather than have them live as the people of Christ. This was a common problem uh, in the early days of the church. Maybe Paul's addressing that. That whole issue where there's a, a division growing between um, Gentile and Jewish believers and the people who have come into the church with them. We, we don't really know. But he's seeking to address this problem and um, does so by, by clarifying. This is the witness of the Holy Spirit. I'm not just making things up. We're not just saying what's expedient to keep everybody quiet and to keep you all getting along. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. These aren't light words. Paul isn't being flippant in any way. He's heartbroken. And he's going to go on to explain why he's heartbroken uh, in the coming verses. He's agonizing over the fact that many of his fellow kinsmen, according to the flesh, he says in verse 3, have so many things that should point them to Jesus and yet do not, for whatever reason, come to Christ. They have these blessings of adoption into God's family. God has taken Israel from all the nations of the world. In fact, in the Old Testament, he says to them, doesn't he, that I've had you become my people. I've entered into a relationship with you, not because you're the biggest, the strongest, the wealthiest, the cleverest, or anything else. In fact, you're the smallest and one of the least significant nations of the world. I've taken you into my family, into my love, because I choose to. I've set my love upon you. And I think part of of God's reasoning in that is that amongst the weakest and the smallest and the least significance, there His glory is most fully revealed when the whole world looks at them and sees what God is able to do with such a small and insignificant people. They must have a truly amazing God. And this is the whole story of Genesis right through into Exodus, isn't it? God leads his people through the most unlikely of circumstances. How is it possible any of Abraham's family survive at all through their experiences? They're kind of led all over the place. They encounter bigger, stronger uh, factions and nations, people who threaten to take away all his family members, all his um, wealth, his very wife, uh, and so on. And yet God leads them amazingly through every twist and turn. Even when the people go down into Egypt, we find that God is leading them down there to prepare them for something greater. And as Moses leads them back up out of the land of Egypt, this small, insignificant race of slaves in a much mightier nation walk out of the country, not just with the blessing of the king who will face undoubted financial calamity as a result of losing this massive free labor force, but we find they walk out carrying all the wealth of Egypt with them. 
And then they survive a whole generation of wandering in a wilderness, cross over the Jordan, and then take possession of this land, this amazingly plentiful land in the midst of what is a pretty dry um, desert region of the world. And they do amazingly well. They shouldn't do at any point. None of this should have been possible. And yet God reveals his unbelievable power, wisdom, foresight, ingenuity, grace, and love. How many times on that journey do God's people fail? He's shown them wonders beyond imagining, and they still turn their back on him and worship golden calves. They decide they would rather go back into slavery to a foreign power than go and be God's people because it was a bit easier back there. Life was more stable, was more certain. It's the whole story of the Old Testament and on into the New. The story doesn't really change. God reveals his power in this seemingly small and insignificant people, reveals his glory. And as Paul looks at this people and says, look at all the blessings they've been given, I'm agonized over the fact that they're not using them to to come to Christ. They have Christ within their family. He's born into our people even. It's not as if we have to follow some foreign leader, some pagan leader. They still won't do it. Paul would love to take their place, he says. I would be accursed. I would be cut off from Christ. Can you believe Paul is saying something like that? This is the depth of his agony. Now, it's not possible for Paul to be cut off from Christ for the sake of another. And Paul knows that, and yet this is really how he feels. I would be willing to forgo my salvation for the sake of these people. This is how much I love them. And yet, so many of them remain in darkness. And we find not only do they remain in darkness... We find that all of these blessings, adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promise, the Messiah himself, we find the recipients of these promises are the Gentile nations. People who knew nothing of them in their history, their culture, their written laws, the the, the day-to-day structure of everyday life. Gentiles who know none of that are receiving all of these blessings. And Israel who know all of that to point them to Jesus don't have it. We agonize, do we not, over those connected to our fellowship? Parents, spouses, brothers and sisters, children, grandchildren, friends over many years. They've had so much. They've received so much. They've seen the blessings of God. They've heard the gospel countless times, and yet they still don't believe. And it agonizes us. And we look at them and think, I would so love for you to know Christ. I would give anything for you to know Christ. And yet they don't. They reject the promises of God. They reject the one who finally comes to deliver the promises of God to them. And instead it goes to others. And it's an agony. It's a frustration. It was so to Paul as it is to us today. And yet in it, I think we begin with a note of great encouragement. Because Paul, in confessing his love for his people, 
cannot help but also confess God's love for them. Every single one of those blessings that the Jews had received throughout their history, adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promises, uh, Christ, are given by a God who loves his people. If he didn't love them, he would have given them none of those things. And for Paul to say that he loves them and he would do anything for them is to say that God loves them and will do anything for them. He sent his only son. How much more can he do? And it's not right for Paul to claim that he loves Israel more than God does. That's sometimes the danger that we face when we think about those that we know and love that don't know Christ, isn't it? We ask questions about how God could save me and not you, about me and and not my neighbor, about me here in the UK and not some person living in Kabul in Afghanistan who's grown up in a Muslim family and will live their life as a Muslim and and die as a Muslim. How, How does that work? I love that person so much that I would do anything that they would have Christ. And the implication in our mind is that God sort of doesn't want them. That God doesn't love them as much because if he did, then surely he would go as far as I'm willing to go for them. And yet Paul doesn't even hint at that kind of attitude because of where he goes next. The solution to the problem that we face, that agony that we face over not all that we know being saved is to see God really as he is. To see the bigness of God. The love of God. The faithfulness of God. The mercy of God. The glory of God as they are. And not to see them as diminished in our sight compared to the love that we have for these people. A great book by Orlando Sayer uh, addresses this. The title of it's just gone right out of my head. But it, it addresses the subject of uh, God being big in our sight and not small. Because most of the problems we face in our Christian lives come from diminishing God, making God more human and elevating us and making us more divine. And nothing good ever comes of that. And that's exactly what Paul does here in verses 6 through to the end of the chapter. In 6 through 13, we find the solution to this agony we face is to draw comfort from God's faithfulness. It is not as though the word of God has failed, Paul says. This is the, the difficulty, isn't it? God has promised Israel so much. So does it not now seem as if God has gone back on his promises? He's withdrawn those promises from Israel and given them to someone else who hasn't had all of those years of of paying their dues, as it were, of worship and sacrifice and, and so on. Think how Israel might have flourished if they hadn't been held back by all of those laws, so the thinking may have gone, if they could have just lived like anyone else, because God's given those blessings to the Gentiles who haven't had all of that time spent serving God. No, Paul says, none of that. The word of God hasn't failed. God hasn't gone back on his word. God hasn't denied what he's previously said. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring, physically speaking, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he goes on in 6 through 13 to draw out this idea that he also um, makes much of in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 particularly, this idea that 
Just because you are born into a certain family doesn't automatically mean that just God forgives your sins and you do nothing, that God forgives you and will go on forgiving you all the course of your life, regardless of what you do, regardless of whether you live for him or not, just by dint of the fact you happen to be born into the right family. That's not how it works. God expects every Israelite and has always expected every Israelite to live in faithfulness with him. This is the nature of God's covenants with them. He expects them to live in a certain way and he will always faithfully uphold his side of the agreement and will always live in faithfulness with them. But if they reject God, the Old Testament is replete with examples where God says, if you turn away from me, this will be the consequence. If you reject me, there will be punishment. And if you turn and come back to me, then I will forgive you and you will be drawn back into my people. But if you go on rejecting me, there will be yet more problems come your way. I'll remove another thing and another thing and another thing. And in the end, I will remove you completely. And we see it played out in the Old Testament through the exile, uh, both of Israel and of Judah, from which Judah returned, although Israel uh, largely didn't. And in seeking to draw this out, Paul isn't trying to undermine our confidence in God, that he sort of promises salvation to a group of people, but actually he isn't really promising it to to the people. He's just promising it to like two or three, um, and the rest of them will never know. They'll just go on thinking that they're part of God's people uh, and, and will be lost as a result. Paul isn't doing that. Paul is pointing the readers or the hearers of this letter to the faithfulness of God, the fact that he saves anyone at all. This is why he goes back to Genesis. Genesis, whatever else it is about, it's a book of fascinating stories. It tells us where we've come from, why the world is the way it is, and so on. Genesis, above anything else, is a book about God choosing. He could have had anyone in the world, but he chooses Abraham. Nowhere near where Israel would be. He's in what would become Babylon. And he has him walk hundreds of miles for years. And from his family, he chooses another and another and another. God is being faithful to his promise, not just to Abraham, but to Adam and Eve to put right the problem that they have brought into the world, that through their son, through someone that will come from their family, sin will be defeated and the world will be restored. It will be not just like Eden, but actually better than Eden. God is being faithful to that promise because God will always be faithful to the one thing that he has set out to do in this universe. And that is to make a creation and particularly to make a people who will glorify him. That is what God made us for, to glorify him. And when Adam and Eve sinned, that corrupted that. Adam and Eve could not go on glorifying God without his help because they've infected themselves with sin. They've walked a different path. They've gone a different way. And so God says, I will be faithful to what I made you to be. I won't destroy everyone I will keep your family going, and out of your family, restoration will ultimately come. I will be glorified in my creation. God will always be faithful. That is what the universe was made for. And because of that, God will be faithful to those he gives these promises to. 
When he says that salvation will come, salvation will come. When he says sinners will be transformed, sinners will be transformed. When he says that his people, and this is not something that we've got time to explore deeply together at the moment, but in in the Old Testament, the word used to describe the people of God collectively, all too often is Israel, a name. It's those people who strive with with God. But, But the sort of collective word that is familiar to us is the congregation. The congregation of God's people, the family of God, the children of God, the people of God. And, and if you were to read um, translations of the, uh, the, the Hebrew Testament in Greek, which is the translation that most of the disciples would have uh, been familiar with in Jesus' day, the word for the people of God is the congregation, which is the reason why in the New Testament this word just carries on being used. Congregation. The word is ecclesia um, in Greek. It means the people who've been gathered together that are not the same as the, the rest of the world. They've been gathered together from the world and they meet together as a distinct people, the congregation. And it's carried right through from the Old Testament right on into the New. God will always be faithful to his people. And our confidence is born in that faithfulness that God is always true to his promises. It makes no sense to us, humanly speaking, for God to do the things that God does in this passage, where he takes the bigger, stronger brother um, in, uh, um, in his family as Abraham's family grows and reject the bigger, stronger brother and take the smaller, weaker brother. But he does it again and again. How many times does Uh, A woman who can't have children, have children, and so God's uh, family continues. And younger brothers, those who are born second or further down the line, are preferred over the older. God is choosing. He's choosing for his own purposes, and he's choosing for his glory, so that his power and his glory and his mercy and his his, uh, foreknowledge and all the rest might be revealed through his working through this most unlikely of candidates. We can think of countless examples. King David is the, if you'll excuse the pun, the crowning example of that. David is as far down the family line as it gets when Samuel goes to choose a king over Israel. He's the very last. That's the one God wants. The smaller one. The one who doesn't have anything to commend himself in terms of stature and prowess and ingenuity and so on. There are other brothers that have all those things. But God chooses what is insignificant to manifest his glory in the world. God is constantly being faithful to his people and to his purpose. And our confidence as we face the, the, um, the struggle of knowing unsaved people is of knowing that God will always be faithful. That God will save sinners regardless of how unlikely it is that such a person would ever be saved. And I cannot tell you the enormous comfort this is to me as I share the gospel with people because the conversations I have with people, you think your language, the way you see the world, it is just so against everything God stands for. I can't even begin to think about how I can share the gospel with you in a way you're ever going to understand. But actually, it's not for me to worry about that. Because God will save sinners, the most unlikely of people. People who actively reject God with every breath, whether they know it or not. And my confidence is that this one person I'm standing in front of today will be one of those people. I don't know who God's going to save, and neither do you. 
And neither do they. He does. And we go in the confidence of knowing that God is able because of his faithfulness to overturn even the most foul and corrupted person, the most deplorable person, the kind of person who's writing a letter like Romans, who goes and asks people to inform on Christians, and then when he finds out where they are, has them dragged off and imprisoned and potentially executed. You don't get much worse than the Apostle Paul before he becomes the Apostle Paul. Paul understands entirely how powerful God's saving work is for the sinner. God is faithful and has been faithful all the way through Israel's history and will continue to be faithful. He will go on saving Jews. And he is still saving Jews today. There's a great many Jewish believers in Christ in the world today, and there will be an increasing number of them over the years between now and Christ's return. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind whatsoever Paul is going to spend Romans 9, 10, and 11 saying exactly that. But our confidence isn't in the fact that they are Jewish. Our confidence isn't in the fact that our family members have come to church every day of their lives and we're just hoping that one day something will happen and they'll suddenly realize they really love all this and really want to commit themselves to Christ. It's not how it works. Our confidence is in the faithfulness of God to save a sinful people. Because he has done for millennia and will continue to do so for years to come. Our confidence is in the mercy of God, we find uh, on from verse 14 and following. He addresses a second problem in this passage. Is it unfair that all people are sinners and he chooses some and not others to be saved? Surely, if God calls all people to repent, then they should at least be able to repent. Isn't that a little bit unfair? But Paul answers again, certainly not. No one deserves forgiveness. He makes that clear. No one has earned it, and yet some receive it. That is an unimaginable mercy. The fact that there is one Christian in the world is unbelievable grace on the part of God. He is an infinitely holy God and should punish sin wherever he finds it, and yet chooses to pass over the sins of some for his own eternal glory. No sinner is desperately wanting to be free of their sin. That's not how it works. Again, we're elevating ourselves to the same level as God and then reducing God down to the level of a human when we think like that. No sinner wants to be free of their sin. They may want to be free of the consequences of their sin. They may want to be free of the pain and the misery that sin inflicts on this whole created order. And yet, there are none that seek after God, Paul says. Not one. All sinners live in their sin and would always choose to stay there if you gave them the free choice, as indeed they have every single day. They can not sin if they choose to, but they won't. Sinners get exactly what they want in life, to keep God out. I want to be the autonomous God of my own world. And God's mercy is that he spares some of those who hate him out of his pure goodness and love and faithfulness to have a people set apart for his own everlasting glory. In the United States, the governor of any individual state has the power uh, to pardon people who are in prison. It's used particularly when people are on death row. We hear of that sometimes, that um, the family of someone on death row has appealed to the governor uh, to give a reprieve, to pardon someone, and they may get life in prison or or something like that. They may be set free. Um, And it doesn't happen very often, but it does sometimes. But when it happens... 
Nobody is standing there saying, well, if you had mercy on him, you should let the entire prison population of the state to go free. Nobody says that. They recognize it is an act of grace and of mercy to that individual that they didn't deserve, but they are given. And the expectation is they will live a transformed life as a result. Part of the reason that's baked into the way the United States works is because of passages like this in the Scriptures. Their mercy, the mercy of the governor, stands untarnished if they allow one prisoner to be pardoned. While the rest go on to face the full penalty of their sentence. Our confidence comes in that God is a God of mercy who does pardon sinners when he ought not to do so. But he chooses to. Because he loves his people. He loves his people more than the Apostle Paul loves his people. Those family members that you agonize over, that you pray for every single day that they would know salvation in Christ, God loves them more than you do. He's known them for longer than you have. He knows how many hairs are on their head. He knows what's going through their mind right now as you pray for them. You don't know any of that. He's known them before they were born. He will know them after they are gone. God knows them and loves them to the nth degree. He sent his son to be a savior so that they would cast themselves upon Christ. God is a merciful God. And yes, we would love it if everyone became a Christian, if everyone was saved. And yet, the fact that any are saved is unspeakable mercy and grace and gives us great hope. Because God has been merciful to me, so there's no reason he can't be merciful to you. There's no reason your life can't be transformed. There is no power in you that was greater than the power of God, just as there was no power in me greater than that power. God's mercy is that he is a God who does save his people. There is no injustice on God's part. He shows mercy to whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills for his own purposes. But those he hardens would have it no other way. Our confidence comes in God's faithfulness. It comes in from God's mercy and it comes ultimately from God's justice as the, uh, the passage come to a close in verses 19 through to, excuse me, 33. You will say, does he, how, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And Paul gets to the heart of what I spoke about at the beginning. We must see God as God. This is what Job said after all of his trials, all of his difficulties. He accused God in the end. How can you let this happen? And when God said to him, who are you? Job realized, I'm nothing. I'm no one. I'm so small and insignificant compared to you and your glory. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and just say nothing from now on. And Paul says, we we don't get to ask God. And Paul's not shutting down the argument by saying, well, it's just up to God. You know, we we don't get to ask these questions. Paul's saying, remember who you're speaking to. God made you, and he made them, and he saved you, and he may save them. It's our hope and prayer that he does, but we don't get to demand that God answers to us as to who he saves. The potter has the right over the clay to do what he wants with the clay because God is working out his plans and his purposes for an end to come. He is revealing not just his perfect mercy, but also his perfect wrath. And it's not popular for us to speak about God's wrath today. I know that. But he is revealing it all for his own eternal glory, that we would see God's justice displayed, that God doesn't just cover over sins and and say it doesn't matter. They do matter. 
there are consequences. And we're grateful for that because we know a great many people who are the most wicked and deplorable that we can imagine. I could just say a few names to you and immediately you would recognize Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot. Pick a, a terrible, despicable person. And we want that person to face justice. And they will. One way or the other. They will face justice themselves or Christ will have died for them on the cross and he will have faced justice for them on their part. But no sin is unpaid for. And this is what we desperately want because it means no sin of yours has gone unpaid for. The confidence you have in your salvation is that God paid for every sin because he will let no sin go uh, unpaid for, unnoticed. Your confidence in your salvation, in the perfection of your salvation, is in the completeness of Christ's sacrifice because of the seriousness of which God takes sin and the fullness of the price that is paid. And that is what Paul was saying here in 19 through to the end. Sin is incredibly serious and it is essential that God deals with it all for him to be holy, for him to be God. And he says in the end, he says to a people that are not my people, you'll be my people. Amazing. He says to people who reject him and hate him, you will be the sons and daughters of the living God. Unbelievable. The Lord of hosts had not left us off, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, his people say, Isaiah says. God has saved sinners. And we should be grateful that the Gentile church exists, that God has poured his mercy and grace out beyond the boundary of ethnic Israel into the world. We should be overjoyed with that. But it should be our prayer for our people who keep stumbling over Christ, that they would stop stumbling over him and turn to him for salvation. Our confidence is in the justice of God. Part of the problem we face when we think about the issue of why some some are saved and others aren't is that we reduce God's value and glory to human scale and elevate human desire to have everything we want for our comfort and delight to the position of God. And Paul corrects that. If we understand things correctly, we'll see that God saves sinners and he does so out of pure love, faithfulness, grace, mercy, when he should save none. And this should give us enormous confidence as we go into the world this week as we come before God in prayer, as we go home to our families and and share the gospel with them gently and persistently, there is nothing that can stop God saving those people if he chooses. There is nothing in your loved ones and friends that can stop God from saving them. So we pray and we pray and we pray that God will extend his mercy to them, not because they're amazing and he can't do without them, but because he's amazing and they can't do without him. And he alone can transform them. And to those of you who aren't Christians and don't think you could ever be worthy of God, it's not about your worthiness. It never has been. It never will be. You're not worthy. It's about the goodness of God. So cast yourself upon him, for God can save anyone, even you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a God of grace and mercy, and yet also a God of perfect justice. Lord God, we cast ourselves upon you. We are helpless without you. And Lord, we rejoice before you this morning, we who are your people, not because we are special and we've worked so hard to do away with sin, but because we couldn't and we were dead in our sins and you've risen us up to new life in Christ. And Lord God, we implore you on behalf of our family, our friends, our loved ones, 
people all over this world, people in Afghanistan and Australia and America and Japan and, Lord God, people in Israel. Lord, we implore you that you would save them, that you would save a people for yourself, for your own eternal glory amongst their number. And Lord God, we pray that that number would be vast indeed, a number beyond counting, as you say in Revelation. Lord God, we ask that you might use each one of us to be instruments in that plan of salvation, that you would send us out with boldness and with confidence, not in ourselves, in our persuasive ability, in the appeal of our church, but Lord God, confident in your faithfulness, in your mercy, your grace, your love, and your justice. Lord God, send us out that salvation might come to this world. Lord God, we ask it all in our Savior's precious name. Amen. We're going to come now to sing together as we close uh, our service and ask, having asked that God would be merciful to us and to our world, that he would go on being merciful into this week and hold us fast to the way that he has set us on. Let's stand together and sing.